Welcome to Your Path to Nonprofit Leadership, the weekly podcast that features the very best in productivity and career development in the nonprofit sector. I'm your host, Patton McDowell, and happy to bring you ideas and resources to build your professional development plan. Thanks for listening and for your great feedback. Glad to bring you these weekly conversations with nonprofit leaders who are literally on the cutting edge of our sector. If you're new to the podcast, welcome. If you haven't yet subscribed, please do so and leave us a review if you'd care to share some of your thoughts and ideas about how we can make this podcast even better for nonprofit leaders like you on the path to leadership. Speaking of nonprofit leaders, I had a fantastic conversation this week with Elizabeth Hausler, who has had a fascinating journey to establish and grow an international organization called Build Change. Now, Build Change is working around the world, particularly in developing nations, to help them improve construction practices so they can better resist earthquakes, typhoons, and other natural occurrences, which often result in tragedy that can be avoided, particularly if housing and other facilities are built like Build Change is helping people do. Now, while the organization itself is fascinating, Equally impressive is its founder and CEO, and Elizabeth provides lots of great insight in the lessons she's learned along this journey of founding a nonprofit and then building it into an international success. And she was very candid about the decision she made and the options she considered when she jumped into this nonprofit arena, and this, I think, will be very valuable for those of you pondering a similar move. And we talked a lot about what she did when she first started, uh, some of the decisions she might do differently now in retrospect, and what are the key decisions that have to be made to not only start a successful nonprofit, but to build it, particularly as you expand across a country and even the globe. Well, in addition to the lessons learned throughout her journey, we jumped into the four headlines of this episode, and they are topics I know that are on your mind as well as a nonprofit leader. Number one, effective hiring of talent. Uh, we talked about effective strategic planning, uh, and then we got into building an effective board of directors. And finally, balancing your role as a CEO and the different hats you have to wear and how you can do that effectively. Lots to unpack here, so don't forget to check out the show notes. This is episode number 84. Just go to the podcast or the news page at PattonMcDowell.com, and you'll find all of the resources, links, and books, as well as more information on Elizabeth and the great work she's doing at Build Change. Speaking of resources, while you're on our website, make sure you connect with us. Get on our email list and so you can get our free weekly resources, uh, including podcast episodes like this one. And let us know if we can help your nonprofit with strategic planning, board engagement, or fundraising. Or maybe we can help you on your journey through our coaching, training, or mastermind programs. Well, without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Elizabeth Hausler. Elizabeth, thank you for joining me on the path. It's my pleasure to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Well, I'm excited for this conversation. You have an incredibly accomplished career, uh, even before your nonprofit leadership. And we'll talk about that because it's it's remarkable, frankly, what you've done at Build Change as a global uh, organization. You're a passionate advocate for safe housing. Um, so the first question, as you might imagine, um, how did you get into nonprofit leadership, particularly given all the opportunities, frankly, you had when you first started out? Yeah, that's a great question. It was it was definitely a curvy path for me. It wasn't a, a direct line. I went from being a bricklayer to being in uh, management and information consulting and engineering consulting, then back to grad school, then on a Fulbright fellowship. And then all of a sudden I was a CEO. So it's not <laughs> wow. exactly a direct path. Well, you mentioned, and I think it, some of that, the, the bricklaying perhaps came in the family, right? Wasn't that kind of an early uh, early inspiration through your family connections? Yeah, that's right. My dad um, uh, owned a small business in masonry construction for 50 years. He's retired now. And um, neither him or my mom had the opportunity to go to college. 
And uh, so they encouraged my sister and I to uh, become engineers, which we both did. But in the summers, we we laid bricks. We worked for my dad uh, as bricklayers. And it was it was great. Um, I love building things. And um, it's a lot of fun to work on a construction site. Well, it's fantastic. And I'm guessing you would say that those varied experiences early on have helped you, right, in your current nonprofit leadership. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I, I would say so, because I, you know, I learned a lot from my dad, even starting out. I mean, everything from the skill of bricklaying, this uh, construction skill, which has been very useful in build changes early days when we, when I was out on the job site training builders on a daily basis. And to, be, to have that insight about how construction actually really works was very helpful. You know, I also look, learned a lot about client service from my dad, um, about how to really listen to the client and understand what their needs are and, and meet those needs. And yeah, I also learned a bit about running a business, you know, um, right, working right. quickly, doing quality works um, that maximizes profit. Um, so yeah, a lot of lessons there, even though you might think bricklaying is just a, you know, bricklaying itself actually is quite an art. So it was a wonderful experience that I had growing up. I'm glad you lift that up because that's exactly what I thought. Those things do apply to nonprofit leadership. Perhaps if a listener didn't make the immediate connection, I'm glad you did. (laughs) And you did it very well. And and I'm excited to talk about it because it's a fascinating organization. And and it's, of course, you are passionate about the advocacy related to it. And we'll talk about all that. But Elizabeth, could I ask you first, a lot of the nonprofit leaders, and I'm sure you talk to peers as well, you're navigating now in this kind of strange virtual environment. Have have you found any things, I guess, in the spirit of productivity that have helped you continue to manage despite, you know, the challenges of no travel and things like that? Yeah, well, I mean, we're using a lot of the tools that everyone else is using, Zoom and, and you know, Google Docs and these sorts of information sharing and collaboration tools, which we were doing very much before the pandemic because we have people all over the world. So, I think we've we've used them even more productively. We've also, you know, you forgive technical glitches. I think more more often now than than yeah, before. Right. Um, and so, yeah, I'm not sure I've got anything new or insightful there to say. We're just doing more and better with with what we have. Um, I think I think personally, I am a big believer in sort of making lists and and, and prioritizing and that sort of thing. And I also noticed even more recently I've I'm not always using a, a device. I regularly write things down on paper. I will spread out a presentation on my floor, something like that. And so I'm toggling between trying to make the best of technology, but also doing some things that are a bit old fashioned, writing things down on paper and and looking at how a presentation looks um, you know, visually versus on a computer. I think that's fantastic. And and I've heard more and I'm trying myself, you know, this kind of combination of the digital and the analog. And it sounds Mm -hmm. like you have had to adapt. And I think there's just something about it, you know, in the brain science and so forth that makes it uh, an effective way to approach things. So thank you for sharing that. And I know we're going to get into more because of the logistics of your leadership across, again, a global organization. But let's start before I forget to ask you, what exactly is Build Change? Yeah, Build Change is an award-winning nonprofit social enterprise that saves lives in earthquakes, windstorms, other disasters by working with homeowners and governments and and other partners to design and build and finance safe housing. So we work on resilient housing. That's the shorter way of saying it. Yeah, good, good. And, and I knew you would articulate very well, in essence, the case for support for build change, as you did in, in, in a succinct but effective manner. You know, but let's go back to when you started it. You know, mm-hmm. you could have stayed in any number of corporate positions, certainly from Berkeley. The academic opportunities were there for you. So why'd you get into nonprofit work? Uh, yeah, I, I could have. And I, I reflect back so fondly in, on both my academic and my corporate experience. I learned a lot. I had a, a lot of positive experiences there. And so I wasn't, it wasn't that I was disgruntled or anything with either of those industries. It was just that I felt I would, what I was doing wasn't directly impacting someone's life. It wasn't making someone's life better. It was maybe making a building better or um, increasing a profit or something like that, but it wasn't having a direct impact on someone's life. And when I was in grad school at Berkeley, there was an earthquake in India. We're coming up on the 20 year anniversary of that earthquake, right. um, which will be on January 26th this month. 
Um, that earthquake in Gujarat near Buj in India killed about 20,000 people. Most people died because their unreinforced masonry house collapsed on them. And I thought, well, here's something that I, I, I might be able to help with because I had that experience working for my dad as a bricklayer and I'd been studying engineering and, and more efficient ways of building safe buildings. I remember you told me in a previous conversation that that really, in many ways, was the catalyst moment, wasn't it? That uh, you knew you had the skill and kind of the experience that could pay off. But so, how did that mm -hmm. translate then, Elizabeth, into all right? I think I need to start a nonprofit. Or what were your early thinkings around creating an organization? Or how did that go? Yeah, I went on a Fulbright fellowship. So from the finishing my PhD at, at, at UC Berkeley, I took a Fulbright fellowship to India and spent a year, a little bit longer in the field, understanding what was happening in that earthquake reconstruction. So I basically went on a learning journey. Um, are people rebuilding safely? Are homeowners engaged in the process? Will these buildings withstand the next earthquake? Are local, builder, local builders being used and trained and, and making money, that sort of thing? So I went out in the field and I asked all these questions. And honestly, I didn't know I was going to start a nonprofit. I didn't go to on the Fulbright thinking, oh, I'm going to start a nonprofit. Sure. I went more to understand what was happening, what I could do. And at the end, I wasn't sure, should I go to work for another NGO that was building houses or a UN agency or what? I didn't quite know. When I came back from the Fulbright, I wasn't sure what I should do. Um, and then I won a first grant from Echoing Green, our very first donor. Nice. Um, and that was, again, that was kind of another catalyst because here's someone who was just investing in the idea. They were investing in me as a leader and the idea itself. And that gave me the confidence and the you know boost of initial funding to you know take the decision to start a nonprofit. That's fantastic. And I was going to ask you, I guess, did you see a distinct gap in services, even in the NGO world that you knew that somebody needed to step forward or were at that point, you're not sure maybe if you would collaborate with someone else? I did see a distinct gap, but I also saw a huge opportunity for collaboration. So yeah, yeah I guess the answer is both. So, <laughs> right. the, you know, in a very short summary, there were two, there are two approaches being used in Gujarat. One was a homeowner driven approach where the government was giving homeowners a cash grant in installments with the requirement that they follow the building standards and they could make their own decision. They could choose the layout. They could choose where was a where's the kitchen, where's the toilet. They could add in their own money to make a bigger house to accommodate their livestock or their livelihood. And that approach was very well received. The homeowners were happy. The houses were safe. It's called the homeowner driven approach. It was very well done. Contrast right. that to some of the approaches that the NGOs were doing where they were just making all the decisions for the homeowners, giving everyone the same house. There were issues with, you know, the toilet was inside when the homeowners wanted the toilet outside. There were issues with architecture and the homeowners just weren't happy, right? So some of the, the way some of the NGOs were delivering housing was just top down and not participatory, not engaging the homeowners. And so there was an opportunity to lift up this model um, that really was exemplary and working very well and to partner with NGOs and other organizations to um, expand their thinking about alternative ways of, or what are now mainstream ways of delivering um, disaster resilient housing after, after earthquakes and, and hurricanes. I love how you articulate kind of the top down, but bottom up really, right? And that yeah. it seems mm -hmm. to me has inspired you personally and is kind of a, you know, one of those... Yep. Uh, culture uh, elements of your organization. Now, let me ask you this. Mm -hmm. India was clearly an inspiration given the tragedy that you saw 20 years ago, but what was then India, your initial kind of scope for your organization? And when did it start to expand as you saw, I guess, issues like this around the world? That's a, that's a, that's a great question to ask again at this moment with this being the 20th anniversary of that earthquake, as well as we, we just have received a grant to work in India 16 years later. It, wow. was origi it was originally, yes, India was the plan. So I came back from the Fulbright in um, 2003, 2004, and I was making plans to work in India. And then the tsunami happened. The Indian Ocean tsunami happened right, right. in 2004. And we diverted our attention away from India and went to work in Indonesia. And then it kind of has gone on from there. And so now, 16 years, 16 years later, um, we're now actually going to work in India. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> that is ironic, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. 
so early on it, it it just you again adapted to the the issues of the time the tsunami gave you a yeah. focus and then so the, and then have you in your growth kind of strategy uh, identified areas around the world w- which were particularly acute in terms of their housing problems and that is how you've mm-hmm. grown yes it's been a mix of of being strategic and deliberate and being opportunistic so Many, right. many of the, uh, the programs that Build Change has implemented have been driven by disasters, which, of course, we can't predict. I mean, we can get some idea about where disasters are likely to happen. But we started in Indonesia after the tsunami. We worked in China after the 2008 earthquake. Then we worked in Haiti after the 2010 earthquake. We started in Philippines after the Bohol earthquake and the typhoon of 2013, Typhoon Haiyan. Um, and then Nepal after the 2015 earthquake. So this trajectory has been very significantly influenced by these disasters. However, all of these countries were on our red radar because they have high likelihood of earthquakes or typhoons. They also have vulnerable housing. So it, it's not a surprise in some ways that we've worked in all of these countries, but when and why has been you know, dictated by forces of nature in some ways. Um, Absolutely. But we've made some deliberate decisions on our prevention program. A lot of what I've been talking about is is post-disaster. For six or so years now, we've also been working on prevention, working with homeowners and governments to strengthen housing before the next disaster. And we've made deliberate decisions to move into Colombia and Guatemala, one country in the Andean region, prone to earthquakes, one country in Central America, prone to earthquakes and windstorms. Um, and use those as starting points to uh, launch uh, pre-disaster strengthening programs and then um, expand um, from those locations to nearby countries. That's fantastic. And I was going to say I'm impressed with the agility you've shown to react to disasters, but it sounds like you're being even more kind of forward thinking, right, and identifying areas that might need you down the road. Absolutely. Yeah, that's and we're we're going to continue to do both to you know, respond to the big disasters when they happen, but as much as we can work with folks to strengthen buildings before, because then we'll, we'll, we will avoid the earthquake or hurricane turning into a disaster, which exactly. is ultimately what we want. Yeah. Which is, and I know we'll talk about it, but that's kind of seems to me the spirit of your advocacy uh, mode mm-hmm. is that that's what you're trying to do. You don't want to have disasters right. causing the impact like it did in India 20 years ago. But let me go back to your personal kind of leadership journey, if I could, Elizabeth, you've been very open about you know, the financial risks, I think, might be the way to frame it, that when you went into nonprofit leadership, obviously, you did not have a path maybe for personal kind of financial security. But how did you wrestle with that when you made the move? Yeah, I feel kind of awkward answering that question at this moment, because I feel that with the pandemic, so many other people are in a much more compromised financial position than I am. And I've got nothing to complain about. So I I feel just, I feel a little (laughs) bit awkward. I feel awkward answering that question, but I think I had an opportunity, you know, again, 20 years ago, I was, you know, I was single. I had no, I had no, you know, no obligations. I was used to living as a poor grad student. Um, (laughs) I had, I had, I had a supportive family and a supportive relationship and I had the opportunity to do it and I did it. And looking back, I wouldn't change a thing. Um, It was a risky decision, you know, it it could, and it could still go in a different direction, but I, I feel very grateful that I had, I had a, I had the right environment to take that to take that leap and to take that risk. Well, and that in, in essence is I think the good advice I knew you would answer to someone considering uh, you know you have to factor in those issues of family support and things like that. But obviously, yeah. this organization and all that you serve is grateful that you decided. Yeah, I'm gonna make the leap. I'm guessing you knew that you had the kind of skills to consider other things if it didn't work out. And and right. I, I, did that kind of impact your maybe early stage thinking? Yeah, I did feel that way. You know, I did feel like I, I did have options if it, if it, you know, if things didn't work out. So I I also had that, you know, I'm very, very grateful to have that as a, an asset. 
Well, uh, thank you for getting into that because, you know, and, and I'm sure you've had that conversation too. people think about the nonprofit sector, which fortunately, and by the way, I think is increasingly more competitive in its compensation. Mm-hmm. And, and so that organizations like yours are making it worthwhile, not just because of the mission, but because you're, you're making it a career trajectory for someone, um, but you've also had to juggle another challenge, and, and I'm I'm betting your dad was a, a very positive influence here. But uh, you know, frankly, a woman in a male-dominated sector around engineering and construction, how have you kind of juggled that, right? or has that been an issue for you as you've continued to grow, build, change? Yeah, it's always been there. Um, you know, I've had experiences where I've been sort of directly told, you know, someone well has said to me, I know how to figure this out better because I'm a man. I, uh. I've had those, I've had those experiences. Um I I feel though that I've also had some really wonderful environments that were that are, have been very supportive of women. My first job. Um, well, not my first job working for my dad, but my first consulting job. And again, this is 30 years ago almost. Um, right. Was for a, a progressive consulting firm. Had women at all levels. I felt no gender bias there. It was just a great experience. Likewise, in grad school, just a fantastic advisor and and a, and a very positive environment. And so I've had really some wonderful experiences. However, you know, I, I think I, I'm noticing it more lately, which maybe seems strange. Like I feel like. I feel like the glass ceiling is, I'm hitting it now more than I hit it before. Really? <laughs> um, so yeah, I know it's weird. Um, I think it's because we, we really haven't broken through um, in terms of very, you know, very significant levels of funding, like some of the um, peer organizations, uh, which are male led. So I've been kind of grappling, grappling with this more now than earlier in my career, which I think it's a bit strange, but yeah, anyway, and that is yeah, disappointing, obviously. And I yeah. would think and hope that you would see more progressive funding given the success you've had now over so many years in leading yeah. the organization. Uh, but um, you clearly have uh, fought through that. Or what do you do? I guess to continue to position yourself in a way that that glass ceiling doesn't slow you down. Yeah, it's a good question. And it's one I'm, I'm continuing to think about it. I mean, on a personal level, as a woman, I think I would advise, you know, my earlier younger self to kind of educate themselves about gender bias, right? I mean, there yeah, are some yeah. really good resources out there. Um, there's a UC Hastings res- re- resource um, about gender bias that I, I find very useful. And I would advise, you know, m- my colleagues, my female colleagues to just understand what it is and how to recognize it and how to address it or deal with it. Um, I just, I didn't really understand or, or know how to recognize it until even more recently. So I would advise, I would advise that. I mean, I think, you know, recognizing where it's, where, you know, my gender has in some cases also been an asset. Um, so recognizing where it's an asset and where it isn't and, you know, you know, yeah, compensating for, for that in one way or another, where it needs, where it needs to be, um, you know, dealt with in a different way. So. Thank you. That's great advice. As of course, as a parent of two young professional daughters, you know, I think gender bias is indeed something that we may not understand. And so I want to make sure we include in our show notes, the UC Hastings resource that you have noted. Um, Well, let's move Elizabeth into the, the growth stage, if you will, you know, yeah. you, you got it started. Uh, you had early success. You knew you were on to something. I, you, in a previous conversation, you used the phrase that uh, the impact of the mission, I guess, became apparent. Was that, did you feel like, or how long did it take for you to feel like, all right, I'm on to something here and I'm going to continue to grow it? It was really quite early. I think it was, I felt the impact on, on builders and homeowners in those very early days, like in the first programs in Indonesia, I, I basically moved to Indonesia and lived in Aceh um, in most of 2005, six, seven, um, wow. packed up my stuff, put it in storage and, and basically lived over there and being able to do that and being able to be um, directly in, uh, talking with homeowners, working with builders. We used to have these bricklaying competitions. They were so fun. So I could feel that tangible impact of our work in the very, very early days in that, in that way, you know, seeing a builder going from sloppy masonry to very good masonry, watching and, and 
you know, working hand in hand with the homeowners and, and seeing their transition from, you know, living in a, in a very temporary shack or, or, or a, a very basic house to moving into a new disaster resi resilient house, especially the women homeowners who would say things like, okay, now I can sleep at night. Wow. I, it was just such a rewarding experience to see that direct impact on the ground. But as the organization grew, my role changed. I mean, I was really program manager back then, uh, more so than I was CEO. And as my role changed and I became further removed from that uh, being in the field, the, the seeing the impact, the way I saw the impact change a little bit, like it was more about influencing a partner agency or be being able to see a partner agency deliver an earthquake resistant housing program, or it was about, um, it was about influencing a government partner in the development of a building standard, or even more recently, it's been about, we've been partnering with the government of Columbia and we've directly influenced the national housing policy uh, for the entire country. And so it's gone from that very tangible on the ground builder and homeowner, homeowner influence to influencing partner agencies, to influence entire influencing entire governments. Love and that. so that's how the mission is really coming through right now. Yeah, but in other words, direct and indirect impact, yes. aren't you? You're able to influence, which of course I know you want to yep. do beyond what you can touch, so to speak, yourself. I, I guess as you wore the all the hats in the early days, you know, from program to fundraiser and, and everything in between it. Were there challenges or how would you describe the early growth phase, particularly as you added people to your team? I wish I would have done that sooner. Um, really? I think that's, yes, I think I would have, I should have invested more in team building sooner. I mean, we had a great team. I mean, to be sure we had great teams in Indonesia. We had some fantastic, we, you know, at points we've had all Indonesian team, same thing in China, but I didn't really start building the senior management team until, you know, even the early, you know, 20, 2010, 2012. Um, and I wish I would have invested in the, in a senior management team sooner. Not sure I could have done it because yeah, right. we were constrained with, you know, financial resources, but it takes time to do that. It takes time to build a really high performing team. Um, and I just wish I would have started on that sooner. <laughs> well, and it's such, yeah. that's such good advice. And I guess, is, is that the lesson for a nonprofit leader? Because you were the expert, you, it, sometimes it's easier to do it yourself. Mm -hmm. So is that kind of the, I guess the temptation we fall victim to that? All right, well, I'll just go ahead and keep doing it myself. But your suggestion is maybe you should invest some portion of your time in building, you know, the team around you. Yeah. And, and in fact, that, in fact, Yes, I, I agree with that. But in fact, some of the things that I was really good at were almost easier to offload or to or to to hire someone else to do. Like one of the earlier earlier changes was to um, hire and and bring up uh, directors of engineering. Um, and so I was doing the engineering at the beginning. I understand it. I know how to do it. But and that was almost easier to bring in someone to do engineering than it was to bring in someone who to do something that I didn't really understand how to do and therefore didn't really appreciate it like marketing and communications. Yeah. Interesting. Like, right. yeah. Like I, I just, I don't know, maybe I undervalued that. Maybe I just didn't know how to hire the right person for that, but that, that was harder. It's been harder to, it was easier to do, you know, to build the engineering team than it was to build the marketing and communications team. That, that is interesting. I've been, and I was going to ask you, were there any early lessons of kind of self-evaluation, if you will, that, What'd you have to learn early or were there lessons around now that you're leading a nonprofit? Because clearly you had the programmatic expertise. So I'm wondering, right. yeah, what were those things early on that you had to learn? Oh boy. I have so many things. <laughs> is there a whole list? I didn't mean to add that to your pile, but well, you marketing communications or things like that. I've, I'm struck by those yeah. kind of topics. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like I remember some of these um, again, going back to Echo and Green, our, our very first donor, they had these fantastic convenings and workshops for, uh, you know, their cohort of organizations who were in the very early stages of, um, of, uh, of starting their organizations. And I remember they had the grace, these great sessions on communications and um, the importance of a, the single overriding communication objective, which I'm, I'm sure I'm not getting out in this because I'm talking about, <laughs> you're asking me so many different questions and right, uh, right. so many different topics. But yes, those being able to 
go through those kind of um, workshops, especially with peer organizations that were kind of in the same place, even doing something totally different, super valuable, um, very valuable in the early days. Do you still find peer support helpful on this journey? So it sounds like then it was helpful. And I'm wondering, yeah, what kind of interaction is there with other, I guess, NGOs like yours? Yeah, it, it, it strikes me every time I talk to um, one of my friends who was in the same cohort with me, uh, with Equine Green, um, it, how similar our, our paths have been and the challenges have been even, um, you know, again, 16, 16 years later and doing something totally different. Um, so those peer, those peer organizations and that peer support network is, yeah, it's hugely valuable. Yeah, I'm glad to hear you say that because, of course, I'm an advocate for all the the you know executives mm-hmm. that I work with. That there's this value because it can be a lonely space. I think, you know, oh, not, sure. not not that you're not surrounded by people and and lots of conversation, but having someone that you can really talk to. And speaking of though being spread out, you know, Elizabeth, as you grew globally, and I think this would apply to a nonprofit just growing in a community. How did you maintain the mission focus? as you were now kind of planting new, new organizations around the world? Yeah, that's been a challenge as well. And I, I still, I wonder, I, I feel, I feel like we've been very good at that. We've actually maintained our mission on disaster resilient housing where we could have done um, you know, we could have done commercial buildings. We could have expanded to do water and sanitation. We could have done sort of neighborhood infrastructure, but we've, we basically stuck to housing We've expanded our, our terms of what is disaster resilient. In the early days, it was about earthquakes. Uh, we expanded to include hurricane resilient. Now we're looking at all, all types of hazards, flood, heat, um, you know, you name it, anything that you can modify a house so that it can become more disaster resilient. So we, we have expanded that way, but we really have stayed true um, to the disaster resilient housing element versus doing a bunch of other things. However, um, I kind of wonder if that if we would have raised more money had we <laughs> had we allowed a little mission <laughs> growth. So I don't know. Yeah, we'll, you know, we'll never know that for sure. Um, but I think we have stayed focused on the mission, um, and I'm I'm a, a, yeah appreciate appreciative of my colleagues who have helped me to do that. Um, I think, but we are spread too thin. I mean, this is this is really? a constant challenge. Yeah, it's a. It, it, I'm sure all I wouldn't yeah I would be surprised if 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 many of your other uh, colleagues in nonprofit leadership have not acknowledged this because it, it's it's a constant challenge with um, with a nonprofit that we're always spread to thin because you know we always want to do more right I mean because right, if we right. look at housing our friends at the World Bank say that three billion people will will be living in substandard housing by 2030 if we don't do something wow. faster and that's a huge number and so there's yeah. so much more that can be done so we're, it feels like we're always spreading ourselves too thin. And that drives you though too, doesn't it? Because yeah. that that uh, clearly uh, on the horizon is more challenging. But as a nonprofit leader, I guess my question for you would be: All right, Elizabeth, that's great that you maintain that, folks. How'd you do it? Was it? Do you think the clear communication you have internally? Did do you literally have the kind of the manual, so to speak, that <laughs> that articulates this vision so that your new person in the Philippines or Thailand or South America mm-hmm. understands exactly what you're talking about? You know that that's a great question, also because the about the manual. I have, I thought in the early days that I could just kind of hand someone a document or a manual or a here's what we did before, and then they would pick it up and go with it. Right. That is not really. It <laughs> <laughs> doesn't work. It doesn't work exactly. Um, it works for some people, you know, and again, that's kind of part of, again, being a good leader is, is being able to adjust your communication style, how you communicate, what you communicate to people who are in your stakeholder group, whether that's a direct report or your board of directors or your clients or whatever. And that's one thing I've learned is like, you do have to adjust how you communicate to various different stakeholders. Nice and point. some, some people, you can hand some people a document and they will read it. Others, it, it, they, they won't. And they benefit more from a conversation. Whereas some folks, if you give too much information in a conversation, they also don't pick it all up. And so it's that has been kind of a, a challenge because that takes time and it takes multiple conversations and it takes a lot of effort. And I, I, I think I've undervalued or underestimated the need to have those conversations and multiple conversations and multiple documents and, and be really conscious about how 
my um, team is digesting information and, and how that is manifesting itself in the programs and then how that is either deviating us from the mission or, or not. So, but I'd say I have not mastered this. I mean, I'd say this is another thing that's kind of a work, a work in progress. Sure, you know, sure. How best to build the team and, and stay focused on the mission and, and be conscious of how people are um, digesting information or not. Such a good point. And, and, but again, I'm impressed that you're aware enough to, that it's not going to be a single channel, is it? That, mm -hmm. you know, one size fits all for this communication, the critical communication internally. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. I was struck, Elizabeth, by you have kind of these three key barriers to mission success. I forget exactly the phrase you used in a previous conversation, but that stuck with me that you've kind of articulated these barriers, which I'm guessing allows you and the team to rally around that, but I wonder if you might share kind of the story behind those three barriers or whatever. Yeah, the three barriers are the barriers for resilient housing, but they're also the barriers for organizational development. So there's a there's a parallel there, yeah. and they are money, technology, and people. And you know, it seems so basic, right? Yeah. But I, I think you could apply this to almost any development challenge, any leadership challenge. I mean, you need financing. Now, if, if on the housing side, if the homeowner doesn't have enough money to build a resilient house, they won't. The organization needs financing too, right? So money and the financing is is a constant barrier. Indeed. Um, te technology. Uh, the way we look at this is is we need engineering technology, we need construction technology, we need information technology. These have to be efficient. They have to be scalable in order for us to achieve our goal of, of thousands and thousands of resilient houses. So, you know, this is, again, it's engineering design. It's also efficient delivery. It's managing information, those sorts of things. The organization needs technology too. You know, as we, we all know, right, I'm mean, right. all using technology constantly. So technology is a second. And the third one is people. And it really should be kind of people policy, right? So an organization needs people. And, you know, our organization, right. we would be nothing without our team. And so we've got to have people on the people side, for delivering the mission, we need the homeowners to really want to live in an earthquake resistant house. And we've got to engage them in the process. So people are central to delivering our mission. What, yet what we've seen is that we're not going to make change at scale unless we change policy. So the people side is kind of a people policy thing where we are also trying to influence policy directions in our country programs so that everyone has access to a better building code or to a housing subsidy or, or something like that. So money, technology, people, I think it's it's true for housing, overcoming the, the housing deficit, as well as for organizational development. I love that. And, and I just I'm thinking that this is something every nonprofit leader should think about. Mm -hmm. You have such a clear kind of articulation of these three bears. And, and regardless of the sector you're leading in the nonprofit yeah. world, you probably have an equivalent three. Right. And I, I can only imagine, Elizabeth, you that that is your platform, right? When you go into a funder or when you go into a government kind of leadership office or you're orienting a new member of your team, those three barriers give you a platform to discuss it. They do. Yet at the same time, it sometimes overwhelms people. Really? Because, okay, so we'll talk about money. And so we have a program in the Philippines where we're facilitating access to microfinance lending um, for home improvement. Okay, that's that's great. That's one thing, but then we can also talk about engineering. Okay, we've got a program where we are um, developing a building code for retrofit, uh, and we can talk about technology. We've got <laughs> uh, we've got apps and uh, platforms that we have developed that are innovative. That our tech partners say they've you know we're pushing boundaries that they've never seen before. That's one thing, and then we talk about policy advocacy, how we're advocating for uh, housing policies, and we talk about homeowner participation. And by the time I get to the end of that, people are That's generally very, yeah, overwhelmed. Yeah. And yeah. I think donors are used to seeing organizations face focused on just one of those things, just so, one. So do you, do you adapt? I mean, is that you well, kind of make a real time decision? All right, this is a conversation I need to focus on people and policy or whatever. A absolutely. I mean, you know, doing the research so you know your audience before, before you even go into the meeting so that you know which to pitch. Um, but it's, it's tough though. I mean, it, it is, has been a kind of a, a, a messaging challenge for us to sort of be able to pitch the right thing to the right donor. But then, you know, build change is about systems change. We're trying right, to change right. the entire system, the entire ecosystem 
of disaster resilient housing. So we feel like we've got to break down these silos. We've got to work on money. We've got to work on technology. We've got to work on people. But then it's, I don't know, some people want a kind of a cleaner, very specific <laughs> um, deliverable. So it's, um, you know, it's a balancing act there. Totally. But I understand what you're saying. You, you, you don't want to diminish the legitimate complexity, right, of what you're mm -hmm. trying to address at a systematic level. But yeah. in some cases, the audience may not be ready to absorb all that, right? Yep. Um, well, given now this uh, wonderful experience you've gotten and to this point in leadership, uh, I'm struck by, you know, these four keys. We've d described this episode, as you know, Elizabeth, these four keys to building a global nonprofit. And, and one that you've uh, referenced more than once is kind of, I guess, the challenge and opportunities of, of um, you know, hiring, training and creating an orientation as you grow literally a global organization. But can you speak to that and maybe some of the challenges and or successes you felt like in that kind of process? Yeah, I can't, I, I just can't underestimate. All right. I can't, um, I, I think uh, these are so important hiring and training and onboarding and orientation. I think I have undervalued them in the past and they're so, so important. Um, right in terms of we've we've really i think we've always done this fairly well but we have not taken enough time to do it we we you know we need to continue to prioritize it and spend the time and you know the way we ask questions in interviews has evolved over the years like i regularly ask people what is their superpower now um, you know, those kind of questions rather than, you know, I, can you do this engineering calculation? I, I think, you know, the way we have looked at our employees and what really makes them a good employee has, has really changed as well. I mean, we talk about happiness. We talk about flexibility. We talk about ability to take risks. You know, we talk about sort of optimism and these, these sort of values and personality characteristics almost, you know, in addition to, you know, can they do the job that we've got laid out in, in front of people? And um, so it's, it's, it's absolutely something that is always going to be there and always going to be front and center and, um, you know, something that we need to continue to spend a lot of time on. I was going to say, and I, cause I think, and I've been guilty and many are guilty. You know, we, we think we hire the right person is all right, they're here, just let them go do the work. But it sounds yeah. like you've expanded. Is that maybe something specific you're doing now that there's more time in the hiring process and a more extensive orientation? Yeah. Yes. We're just having this discussion about the onboarding by fire hose uh, method, <laughs> right. which doesn't really work. Um, and so, yeah, it's something that even 16 years into this, we're still discussing things like that. And I, I think one thing is I've just appreciated the necessity to repeat things, right? To go back and go over something that we've already gone over and that's totally okay. And that we're gonna have to have time to do that. And, you know, we're gonna have to revisit some things and that's okay. So, um, but it all takes time. And I think, um, I think it's important though to include that. Uh, especially, and, and cause you're right. The fire hose is the perfect analogy that we, we mm -hmm. get them there. And then it's just too much to absorb. And so now are you more intentional? Like, all right, over the first six months of their yeah. tenure or what is the rough timeline for someone's orientation now? Yeah, we do. We actually do onboarding plans now. We didn't do those in the early days. Um, yeah. and so and it, it depends. I mean, it kind of depends on the person as, as well as the position, but I mean, I've had, situations where, you know, the true onboarding really takes a year, yeah, um, good. you know, before someone, you know, really gets the full run of their position as well as, um, you know, the ability to kind of go on their own and, um, you know, direct their own, their own, um, work. Yeah. Love that. And again, I think that's just something for our listeners to reflect upon that if your orientation is a three ring binder that happens, you know, the day they arrive, then that's mm -hmm. uh, not likely to be one that's going to be successful. And so you've expanded it in a way that is going to be better. Uh, mm -hmm. Question number two, uh, Elizabeth, in this round is strategic planning. You've shown as an organization your great agility to respond to kind of tragedy around the world. Um, you're being now proactive to yeah, obviously that must involve a process of looking where the need might occur, but talk about strategic planning, I guess, how you're doing that now and how you're approaching it going forward. 
Yeah, yeah, like we talked about before, I mean, a bit of Bill Change's trajectory has been strategic and very deliberate and, and other parts have been, you know, influenced by disasters. And so in some ways I, I kind of have, I don't know, I have a mixed relationship with strategic planning because I think it's important Yet at the same time, I don't want us to spend a huge amount of time on it because things can change so quickly, especially yes. in our work that's influenced by earthquakes and hurricanes. And so for us, strategic planning has kind of taken on more than just strategic planning. It's actually more about team building and it's more about us getting together in the same room. Um, we have a strategic planning meeting once a year. Um, it usually had been it had been in San Francisco where we would have um, three days among our senior management, and then we'd have two days with our board. And it was always like one of the highlights of the year, I think, for a lot of people on our team, you know, late night conversations, kind of re getting to, you know, getting connected with people who we hadn't seen in person, we'd only seen, you know, on Skype or whatever. Nice. Um, yeah. And it, it's a hugely valuable thing to get down deep into some of the issues. And we didn't do it this, we did it this year, but we did it on Zoom. We did it yeah. virtually. That's different, isn't it? Obviously. Oh, totally different. I mean, it was good, but it seemed a lot more formal. Um, and and it just, we didn't have that kind of personal connection. And so I almost like equate strategic planning with the sort of team building part, right? Because this is an important team building part for us. Um, but we do have a strategic plan and we do have tactical plans. We do all, we do kind of all of those things that we need right. to do. Um, okay. But I with think- yeah. Oh, go ahead. Sorry to interrupt you, but kind of with a year to year, is it still kind of a 12 month horizon that is primarily focused around? Yes, but we've been trying to do more um, topic discussions in between. So take a sub part of what we would normally discuss at a strategic planning meeting and, you know, discuss that, you know, it, every month or in a couple of month time frame, because we find also on our strategic planning, these retreats that we have, these offsites, that we still don't have enough time to really get into the details of a specific issue and then progress that issue um, over that next year. And so we've started doing these topic calls and these or these subgroup discussions on specific items that come out of the strategic planning meeting that we know we need more time and input to address. Love that. Staff and board then would participate in that? That is mostly staff. Subtopic? Okay. Yeah, that's mostly staff, um, not board that participate in that. Yeah, but I, I love that, that you can take a deeper dive that you, you're just mm -hmm. speaking to the fire hose. If you tried to do all that in a three-day retreat, yep. you're saying there's just not enough time, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. Oh, really appreciate that. It's just, again, the practical kind of thoughts around strategic planning. You mentioned your board, and I think in a previous conversation, you affectionately described you're on your board 4.0. <laughs> can, yeah. can, can you explain what you mean by board 4.0? Yeah. Um, well, the first board was me and and two of my dearest friends who I trusted sitting around my kitchen table. So <laughs> exactly, yeah, that's, that's early stage, right? Yeah, that's early stage. And then the, the sort of board 2.0 and 3.0 were kind of expansions, but primarily driven by corporate partners. So we had and private sector folks. So we had um, some very incredible corporate partners, and they had, we had some folks on our board. And so that was that kind of the 2.0 and 3.0. Those boards, however, were primarily internal facing, you know, in addition to these corporate relationships, they were primarily internal facing in that they were focused mostly on um, team, internal team building, supporting me with developing the team and, and, and management development. They were focused on financial compliance, as any board should be, on audit compliance, on um, growing our ability to produce good financial reports, which is something that I think we've done quite well over the years, you know, right. had a history of clean audits and that sort of thing. Um, but these boards were primarily internal facing. So the way I'm looking at, at board 4.0, which I'm, I'm working on now, is a largely external facing board because we, you know, we're a fairly mature organization in right. 16 years. We have systems, we have security protocols, we have standard operating procedures, we have audit compliant procurement systems, we have financial compliance, we have, you know, performance review systems, we basically got those systems that you need to have in place to, you know, run a business, whether it's nonprofit or a for-profit. And so our main need right now is funding and influence. And so I'm looking at board 4.0 as a primarily externally facing board that will assist us with fundraising, 
with advocacy, with partnership development, with promoting the organization and its mission, more so than looking at like our financial systems or our procurement systems or something like that. Right. Uh, that's such a good description. And I guess the follow-up question will be, all right, how do you do that? Is it going to manifest itself in your nominating process? In other words, the type of people you go after that will reflect that kind of 4.0 mentality? I think it does. Yeah. I think it, it, it starts with us, you know, stating that this is what we want. Right. Yeah, yeah. And this is something again, that I've been working on about, you know, positioning, okay, this is where build change is at. This is what we want. These are the people that we're looking for. And then tapping into our networks to, you know, identify some of those folks, as well as just branch out to, you know, the world at large and put this on the table of this is where build change is. This is what we're looking at. We've got a great opportunity here. And, and, you know, let's talk about how we can partner. I think that's fantastic. I think not enough nonprofits lift up kind of their desires around board leadership. Mm-hmm. And so it sounds like if you tell that story, who knows who that might attract, you know, either directly or indirectly through your networks. And, uh, you know, I, I bet there are people out there that particularly if they're clear on what you want, they might be exactly yeah. what you need. Um, let me ask you the final of our four kind of topics. And you mentioned this, I thought, in a very uh, thoughtful way that the balance of your time literally as a leader, because you could spend, you know, unlimited amounts of time on any of the hats you wear. I think, uh, Elizabeth, you were talking about the the tug of war, maybe fundraising versus advocacy, but I, I wonder that might apply to other areas, but maybe talk about that. How do you find balance or how are you trying to find balance when you have kind of uh, competing demands? Uh, that's a tough one. I'm not, I'm, I'm. You hadn't got there sure yet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Right. I'm not sure I'm, I've gotten there yet. I think, um, well, fundraising advocacy, they're kind of, inherently connected, right? I mean, yeah. or at least I think they are. I mean, I think if we do better advocacy, we'll be better at raising funds, that sort of thing. Um, I think that as an organization, we need to do much more advocacy. Um, so I, 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 I would love to do just advocacy and no fundraising. Yeah, right. <laughs> to tell you the truth, because fundraising is hard. Yes, I mean, yes. It's, it's really hard. You have to be ready to have doors constantly slammed in your face. And it's, you know, it takes, it's, it's just, it's just tough. So, um, so, but you know, this is where we are. And so I I see these two as very much connected. Um, And I'm hoping that as we amp up some of our advocacy that will enable us to be, to raise more funds. So um, hopefully it can, we continue to endeavor to balance these things. Well, it, it seems consistent with what you've built the organization around too, is that you want to do more than just kind of the operations of build change, right? Because advocacy can influence in direct and indirect ways. So it makes sense that, I guess that's your vision that someday you might literally be almost hundred percent advocacy and that would be a good thing. We talk about that. Yeah. We talk about that. Um, I don't know about hundred percent advocacy because there's something special about build change in that we have the ability to do both, to do advocacy as well as actually build a building or retrofit a building and show a tangible result to show that this is how much it costs. This is, this is the homeowner and how they're engaged in this process. This is the um, policy that needs to change. The fact that we've been able to show this tangible on the ground output as well as change policy I think it would be hard to move away from that because it's a beautiful thing that build change has done that not many organizations can do both. Um, and so I'm not sure where any of us are convinced we should do hundred percent advocacy. Yeah. Right. Um, but we all agree that we need to do more advocacy um, and that these two things are connected. Uh, again, I'm struck by how thoughtful you are about this process and these kind of, uh, I guess, internal and even external tug of wars. Do you mm-hmm. have a kind of a personal self-assessment methodology? Do you sit down almost by yourself year after year? Or, or is this a kind of an ongoing uh, mental gymnastics that you kind of think about your role and how it's going to evolve? I would say it's a mix. I'd say so, I, I do. I do think about it a lot. I um, do kind of set some annual goals Although yeah. 
it's, yeah. it's, it's January. What day is it? And I, I haven't actually done it. Yet. <laughs> Are you behind this year on that process? Maybe? I, 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 I am. I, I, I am. I mean, I have them kind of, you know, sort of scribbled down somewhere, but I haven't actually put them in a, you know, in a document to send to my team, which I had been doing every year. So yeah, I do do that. I do think about what my goals are and what the organization goals should be for the year. Um, so yeah, that's, that's a part of my process. And I think, you know, I think, I mean, I, I've been doing this job for 16 years. That's a All long right. time Indeed. to have one position. And I think what has kept me interested and engaged is how my role has evolved and how I've gotten to do so many different things with the organization and how I've gone from the engineer and the construction supervisor and the you know finance person to now the policy advocate and the you know communications and and that sort of thing and we've had so many interesting problems to solve i mean now we're we're looking the problems are more about um, the access to financing how do we work with microfinance partners to scale a product with them that's a totally new thing wow yes um, and for me yeah. as an engine with training as an engineer to try to understand how this industry works is is exciting so it's almost like even though i've had the same job for 16 years i've had within that i've had so many different jobs a lot of different ones yeah so it's it's kept me very interested and um engaged and i think once we get to, if we ever get to the point where you know my job is still the same job then that would probably be the time to exit. But right now, yeah. we are <laughs> the we are succession plan comes yeah, into play then, doesn't it? Yeah, we're not at that point. There's so many interesting elements to to my job that I'm I'm very much still engaged and think it's just such a, a great opportunity. Uh, uh, has been. Clearly, you still have the passion for it. Let me, can I unpack that specific exercise, which I think is very interesting. Do you, on an annual basis, again, in years mm -hmm. past, you do kind of a personal planning exercise and then you send it to your team. Can I ask you kind of do, what is yeah. the nature of that communication? Because I think that's something other nonprofit leaders might consider. Uh, it's just an email that I send. Yeah, um, good. And we, and we uh, you know, we, it's generally something that we've talked about though, right? Because we have the strategic planning meeting in October and that is, even though it's in October, it's not in you know December, January, it is when we are already reflecting on what we did that year and what we're gonna do the next year. And so a lot of what I'm sending out like around, you know, the first week in January. <laughs> yeah, right which, about now. <laughs> uh, yeah, um, is, it, it has been, I've been basically thinking about that since October and it's been influenced heavily by our discussions in October. It's also been just influenced by what I think the organization's objectives need to be like. Um, I also have a history of, for maybe the last six years of declaring it the year of something. Interesting. So, and the a first theme one was, kind of, or an overarching yeah. kind of something. The first one was the year of, uh, year of improved communications. Yoik. So it was kind of, <laughs> it was kind of a Quite joke. an acronym. I, yeah. Right. We were having internal communications challenges back then. This was like, I think maybe 2013, 2014, I started doing this. Yeah. Early days. And so every year since then, I've declared it the year of something. And so we've had things like the year of prevention. When we started our prevention programs, we had the year of simple, where we were really pushing to simplify some of our engineering resources. Um, we are, we have had things like the, um, the year of everything external, which is kind of a weird one. I need a better way of saying that, but it's That's basically right. really, really focusing on our clients and enabling them to deliver something at scale versus making something easier for us is one thing, but we really need to make it work for our government partners or our microfinance partners or whatever. So I've got this history of doing a year of something also to kind of set the tone for the year and to share with the team what I think is important for them to focus on. Love that. And, yeah. and I'm guessing that manifests itself then when you have team meetings or, I mean, that you can just kind of quickly say, all right, yep. folks, what are we doing along this year's theme? Yes. And it adds me to, um, it, it enables me to kind of bring that in as a recurring theme and to add dimension to it. Um, we've had the year of talk more, do less, which is definitely something that create, created some waves and had some, some negative um, you know, negative feedback from it. It was basically, <laughs> right. we need to, we, we've done so much, Build Change has done so much, yet we haven't really sold it as much as we should. And so that was mainly to say, okay, look, 
I can package this up. I can sell it. I can talk about it. I don't need to tweak it a little bit more. It's already 95% of what it needs to be. Maybe it's a hundred percent. So let's stop working on tweaking this and talk about it more and sell it more and that sort of thing. I, I think it's fantastic. And just to hear how you literally have kind of operationalized that uh, it's a planning kind of tactic. It seems to me a communication tactic and yeah. allows your team to rally around it. So that that's just, that's great. Um, Elizabeth, this has been a gold mine of kind of ideas and advice. Um, and I appreciate your kind of being open about some of those things, sure. you know, you hadn't figured out, right. And yeah. perhaps we never do in some cases, but if there is someone listening and I know there are that like, wow, I'd, I'd love to follow in, in Elizabeth's footsteps. Is there any other advice you would offer? Oh my gosh. Yeah, it's um, kind of an open-ended question. Isn't it, to finish with? <laughs> uh, just do it. Just, just do it. Take the risk, do it. Um, and put it out there, be close to your clients. Um, you know, it's hard to, hard to serve your clients without really trying to walk in their shoes as much as possible, even though, you know, we know that's not really ever truly possible. Right. Um, you know, stick to, stick to the mission. Um, we've seen organizations who are affected by a disaster, which we all are right now with the global pandemic. They, they completely shift their mission. And, um, and that is, is, we've seen that not work. Um, and so I would say, you know, as we're all facing a global pandemic to stick to your mission, but maybe consider changing the way you deliver it, right? That sort of thing. Um, so, yes. Yeah. Well, you, again, have given us literally a checklist of things uh, that I will try to capture to some extent in the show notes um, as to what nonprofit leaders need to think about. And again, I'm grateful you were willing to share your journey. Um, I'm also grateful that you embraced my, you knew the recommendation for a good book was coming. So it sounds like you (laughs) might have more than one. Well, I have, you know, I I, I can't say I'm a, a really... I can't say invest much time in, in, in as much time in reading as I should, but <laughs> right, we I, all need to do that more, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think it's in the spirit of the way you've asked these questions. I, 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 there's a book that was very influential in the early days. There's one in the middle and there's one that I'm reading now. And so in the early days I was, I was very heavily influenced and inspired by uh, good to great for the social sectors by Jim Collins. Oh yeah. So Fantastic. The hedgehog yeah. concept, the flywheel, um, how it does take multiple iterations around that flywheel to really build an organization to continue that in- innovation and influence. And so that was what I was carrying back around in my backpack in the very early days. Yes, yes. Midway through, as we were, we were building the management team and developing the organization and having this, the yoik year, the internal communication <laughs> right. year, um, I uh, had the opportunity to interact with Rob Kaplan from the Drake Richards Kaplan Foundation, one of our funders, and he shared his book, uh, What to Ask the Person in the Mirror, and which is about leadership and nice, asking, yourself, nice. asking yourself the tough questions that leaders need to ask themselves. So that was very, that was pivotal at that moment. Now I am reading um, The Purpose of Power by Alicia Garza. So you can see a trajectory nice. here of nice, the, beginning, yeah. the beginning, it was about the organization the middle, it was about leadership, and now it is about collective action. And this book is so interesting in terms of how we build a movement, how we how we bring together um, different stakeholders for a cause. It also reminds me, it, in some ways, of you know how we engage in homeowners and with homeowners and how important um, the on the ground discussions with with folks who are involved in the issue how essential they are. Plus, I think, I think this is essential reading for any white leader in America right now. Alicia Garza is one of the three founders of Black Lives Matter. And there's, there's just, I'm receiving an education by reading this book on so many different, on so many different levels. It's so great. Oh, I'm sorry to interrupt you because I just think that's powerful and I'm grateful you're willing to lift that up as I certainly will. Uh, Three great books, but I think Alicia's is certainly one that that maybe is appropriate to finish with. And I'm delighted to hear it still is, you know, influencing you in such a positive way. So absolutely. We'll lift it up on the show notes along with lots of good information from you, Elizabeth. And perhaps most importantly, how can people learn more about the great work you're doing at Build Change? Ah, Yeah, thank you for asking that. Our website is buildchange.org. 
And they can also follow us at Build Change on Twitter and Facebook. Um, we're um, reorganizing organizing our YouTube channel. We've got a lot of great videos there. So we're on YouTube as well. Um, so yeah, we, we would love to hear from folks and, and expand our partnerships. Well, delighted to share the good story here. For those that don't know, I'm glad to play a small part in helping you <laughs> with the messaging that you so deserve. And thank you again for joining me on the path. Yeah, my pleasure. I loved your questions. It was a great discussion today. Thank you again. Well, I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Elizabeth as much as I did and came away with some practical ideas that can not only guide your journey, but can help you with your organization's strategic planning. Don't forget the show notes are available on our website, PattonMcDowell.com, where you can find out more about Elizabeth, Build Change, and some of the great resources she lifted up. As always, please share this episode with someone else on the path. If you haven't already, you can subscribe. Just go to our podcast page at PattonMcDowell.com and you'll see links to Apple, Spotify, and all of the primary podcast platforms. Don't miss out on any of our weekly episodes. They come out every Thursday, as well as bonus features we're producing at least once a month. Thanks for all you're doing in the nonprofit sector, especially right now, and keep up the good work for causes that are most meaningful to you. I'll keep bringing you content that can help you do it even better. Have a great week, and I'll see you next time on The Path.